Welcome to this week's edition of From the MLJ Archive, a weekly radio program featuring the Bible teaching ministry of the late Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. We are currently listening to the doctor's famous series from the Book of Romans, which he delivered to crowds on Friday nights from 1955 until 1968. But what you are about to hear is just as contemporary as when he preached it. And so let us now open our Bibles and our hearts as we listen to the doctor. I don't read any particular verse in the ninth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans this evening as a particular text for the reason that I'm anxious rather to draw certain general lessons and deductions with you from the entire chapter. Now those who attend here regularly will know that we've been working through this chapter since the first Friday night of last October. It is, by any reckoning, a very vital and a very crucial chapter, not only in the argument of the whole epistle to the Romans, but from the whole standpoint of Christian doctrine and an understanding of the Christian truth. And I think that as we've been working our way through it, we have all come to see that and perhaps to recognize it, at least I trust we have in a deeper manner than we've never done before. Now, while the Apostle, of course, was primarily dealing with the situation as it obtained in the Christian Church actually in his own day and generation, he is at the same time, of course, laying down principles which are of universal application and which have from time to time in the long history of the Christian Church emerged with particular clarity. And it is because of that that I am calling your attention to some of these general lessons which it seems to me stand out on the very surface of this teaching. Now the main point which the Apostle establishes and with which he is dealing of course is this, the tragic position of the Jews as a nation. Here was the very people of God, the people whom you would have anticipated would have been the first to enter into the Christian church, actually outside. There were individual Jews inside, as he reminds us in verse 24, where he says, Even us, whom he hath called, not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles. He is dealing with the position of the Jewish nation as a whole. And uh, the truth was, of course, that as a whole, the Jewish nation was outside the church, whereas those who had gone crowding into the kingdom, into the church, were mainly Gentiles. Now, he deals with that position. And we've followed his great argument as he's worked it out in the whole body of the chapter. Now, while that, I say, is his main object and purpose, he does, in dealing with it, lay down these principles, which are as valid tonight as they were then, and it is to them that I want to call your attention. Now, as I do so, I want to emphasize this point that our study of the scriptures must always have this practical intent and object. There is nothing which is so fatal, that's why I keep on repeating this, as to come to the scriptures with a purely theoretical or intellectual or academic interest. That is one of the greatest dangers of all. It's a very real snare. It's a danger into which many have fallen. They approach it in this purely detached intellectual manner as if the, it were just a subject like any other subject and they have never realized its practical relevance to them themselves. Well now it is in order to show that this scripture that we've been looking at is so full of practical lessons for us that I'm going to spend this evening 
in drawing out these lessons. I wonder how many of you are surprised at my still dealing with this. How many, I wonder, came tonight assuming that we'd be doing the first verse in chapter 10? I'm almost tempted to ask you to hold up your hands. Because uh, if you did expect that, you see, you've fallen into the very error which I'm indicating. You'd have said, ah, but he's worked through the argument now. He's dealt with the last verse last time. Obviously, we go on to chapter 10. We don't. We must learn the lessons. We must apply it to ourselves. Very well, let's proceed to do so. The first great lesson which I find here is the value of the Old Testament. Now, I've got to start with that. Because it's so obvious in the whole of the chapter that to the apostle, the Old Testament is absolutely vital and essential to his position and to his whole argument. And this is one of these points, I say, which is equally true now as it was then. You may say, oh, but of course he was dealing with a Jewish problem, and he was dealing only with Jews, therefore he of necessity uses the Old Testament. But we are now Christians. And because we are Christians and members of the Christian church, what is the Old Testament to give to us? Now, there are many people, it seems to me, who take up that position and who feel that as they now are in this new position, that the Old Testament is to them quite useless, irrelevant, and has nothing to give them. Well, if we had nothing but this ninth chapter of the Epistle to the Romans, it surely ought to be enough to correct any such tendency in any of us. The Apostle uses it constantly, uses it repeatedly. And he does it not only here, but he does it in all his epistles. Indeed, there is nothing that is so characteristic of the whole of the New Testament as the way in which it draws on and quotes the Old Testament scriptures in order to elucidate or to explain some point or in order to establish some particular argument. And therefore I would draw these particular lessons with regard to the value of the Old Testament. First, one sees the wisdom that was given to the early church in this respect. Remember, it was mainly a Gentile church. It received some of its most bitter persecution from the Jews. What would have been more natural or instinctive than to reject the Old Testament and to say that they'd got nothing to do with the Jews at all, that this was something entirely new, but they didn't do that. They were led of the Holy Spirit, and they were led, therefore, when they developed their new literature, to incorporate it with the old literature and to form the book which we now call the Bible. There we see the wisdom of God given to the early church a wisdom that has safeguarded the church throughout the centuries from many grievous errors and dangers. The second point I draw about the value of the Old Testament is this, and we must have noticed it as we've been working through this chapter. What a great buttress it is to our faith. The apostle later on in this epistle talks about the comfort and the consolation of the scriptures. And what a comfort and consolation the scriptures are. For instance, when you confront this problem which is dealt with in this chapter, that the Jews are outside and the Gentiles are in, it's a very great problem. And we've got a like problem. People whom you'd expect to find as Christians very often are not Christians. And those whom you don't expect to find, you find as Christians. And it's very difficult to understand these things. The answer is to be found so often in the Old Testament. And that is why we must never cease to thank God that he's given us the comfort and the consolation of the Old Testament scriptures as well as the new. What a comfort it must have been to the apostle as he was working out his argument that he could say as Hosea said or as Isaiah said or some other quotation which he uses from the Old Testament. Then the third lesson is this one. And it's been a great point coming out right through this whole chapter. That God's purpose is one. His purpose in the Old Testament and in the New is one. And it's always the same. It's a very wrong thing to make too great a difference between the New and the Old Testament. Many people do that. 
They say, we are not under law now, we are under grace. All right, the apostle has said that, but he doesn't mean that in the wrong way. He doesn't mean it in the sense that you can dismiss the old. The purpose of God starts in the Old Testament, and it works on and on and on, till you come to the new, and it goes on, and it still is going on, but it's the original purpose that was announced in Genesis 3.15. Surely this chapter has been putting that before us all along. We've been taken back, you see, to Abraham, to the very beginning of the Jewish nation, and he's led us right away through to the prophets. Thus we see that the purpose of God is one, and it is still the same purpose. You can see God's grace working itself out in the Old Testament as you see it in the New Testament. It is the one great central purpose. And another thing that we've seen, and this is my fourth point, is that not only is God's purpose the same always, but God's method is always the same. The method that he employed, for instance, with Isaac and Ishmael is exactly the same method that he employed with Jacob and Esau. It's the same method that he's been employing right through the times of the prophets. It's the same thing he's doing now, says the apostle. And it is always the same thing. In other words, as God's plan and purpose are one, so his method is always the same method. The principle of grace is as obvious in the Old Testament as it is in the New. Now, many people have never seen that. They think that in the Old Testament you've got nothing but law. Quite wrong. The apostle has been showing us the operation of grace. Not only of grace, but of election. In the Old as well as in the New. And it is still continuing. This is a very wonderful thing to me. It means, you see, that you and I are in the center of God's purpose. And that he's working out the purpose, even today, as he has always done in past ages. And the last lesson that I draw is this one. That when you are confronted by some problem in the realm of belief or of doctrine, the thing to do always is to face it in the light of the teaching of the scriptures. That's what the apostle does. He reasons, he argues, but he's always got the scripture as his background. Here's his final proof. So we found him quoting the scriptures in such a free and a liberal manner in order to establish his case. And that is to be our method. We must never face these problems in a kind of abstract manner. That's what so many are doing today. We must avoid that and we must face them in the light of the teaching of the scriptures. And it's astounding to notice the number of problems that can be solved merely with the Old Testament. It's not surprising because, as I say, God's method is one. And therefore you will see perhaps in some historical illustration in the Old Testament, the dealing of God with some one person or his dealing with the whole nation, you will see the teaching which is applicable to you personally and individually today, or with regard to some problem that is perplexing your mind. You see, here the apostle really answers this great question of the purpose of God according to election. He really deals with it by means of a series of Old Testament quotations. He says, don't you see that that's what he's always been doing? Don't be surprised, therefore, at what he's doing now. And I say that that argument is as valid tonight as it was when the Apostle used it 1900 years ago. Very well, there are some general lessons that one can learn with regard to the use and the value of the Old Testament. Let's never forget it. This is the way to deal with a problem. Think, think scripturally. Bring to bear upon your problem what God has so clearly taught and revealed in the scriptures. Now we have the new as well as the old, but that doesn't mean that we discard the old. Very well. There's the first general lesson, value and use of the Old Testament. But let's come to a second group of lessons, the personal lessons, which it seems to me we must learn from the argument of this chapter. Now, what I mean is this when I say personal lessons. 
We must surely, all of us, have seen more clearly than ever before, if we've been following this argument, that there are certain things which we must never rely upon in connection with our relationship to God. Now, you might think that these things need no longer to be said. You think you know them, but we don't know them. I think one of the greatest dangers in the Christian life is to be always falling back upon works in some shape or form. Like the Galatians, we tend to start in the spirit, but we end in the flesh. We start by faith, we end with works. It's always trying to insinuate itself. If there is one chapter in the Bible, more than another, that ought to warn us against that danger, it is this ninth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. What does it put out? Well, here are some of them. It puts out natural birth. Natural birth does not make anybody a Christian. Are we all clear about that? The fact that our parents, grandparents, or forebears were great Christians doesn't mean that we are Christians. It is not of natural birth. That was the old tragedy of the Jews, as we've seen. Put next to birth, family, nation, none of these things matter at all. But oh, how much they have mattered throughout the centuries. How much they still matter. There are still people who think of this country as a Christian country. What utter nonsense. There's no such thing. There never has been a Christian country. There cannot be a Christian country in the light of this teaching. Whether your government calls itself Christian or not, it doesn't make the slightest difference to this spiritual teaching. No, no. These things must never be relied upon. This chapter shouts that at us more clearly perhaps than anything else. But we've got to add to that. Never rely upon your religion. The fact that you're a religious man doesn't of necessity mean that you're a Christian man. The Jews were highly religious. You can be religious without being Christian. The things are not synonymous. You can believe in God and still not be a Christian. That's the great lesson here. They stumbled at that stumbling stone. What was it? Not belief in God, but belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. That was the stumbling stone. And it still is. We mustn't rely upon religion. We mustn't rely upon a belief in God. We mustn't rely upon our good works. Though they're good works, they're valueless in the sight of God. One thing alone puts a man right with God. Not our works. You see, we've had that put before us so clearly. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil. That puts out our works once and forever. They must never come in. They must never be allowed to put in any sort of appearance in our relationship to God. That isn't what determines salvation. And lastly, we should have seen very clearly that we mustn't rely even upon our belief, even our belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. It isn't my belief that saves me. It isn't my faith that saves me. If I say that, I'm turning my belief and my faith into works. I'm taking credit to myself, and I mustn't. This is the chapter of all chapters in the Bible that takes from men any sort of credit whatsoever. For the children being not yet born, neither having done any good or evil, that the purpose of God according to election might stand not of works, but of him that calleth. The apostle took 33 verses to bring out that point. It's essential. God grant that we all have learned that lesson. We are what we are by the grace of God and by that alone. And as that is true of us now, it will be true of us on our deathbeds. We will have nothing that we can rely upon save the purpose of God and that we are included in it by his grace. Very well. That's the great statement of this chapter. Come to a second lesson. It's the obverse of that, of course. Our relationship to Jesus Christ and him crucified is the one and only thing that matters. 
We are justified in Christ and in him alone. It is what he is and what he's done for us that saves us. Nothing in ourselves, it is all together and entirely in this one blessed person. Here he is. He's either a stumbling stone and a rock of offense. Or else he is to us the all and in all. Everything. That's the great purpose of this chapter. That's the tragedy of the Jews. The one thing that matters, they went wrong on. They were right in so many other respects. But because they went wrong here, they're wrong everywhere. Nothing matters but this. The one question is, what think ye of Christ? It's the one and only question. So I go on to a third point on this personal lesson. And surely this must have come home to us in almost a terrifying manner. The need of constant self-examination why? Well, you see, it's because of the danger of presuming or of assuming that all is well with us. The Jews had never suspected that there was anything wrong with them. Why? Well, because, you see, they are Israelites to whom pertaineth the adoption and the glory and the covenants and the giving of the law and the service of God and the promises whose are the fathers. And they'd gone on presuming that all was well. Here again is a most terrifying lesson which comes out perhaps more clearly in this chapter, I say again, than anywhere else in the whole of the scripture. Here is the tragedy of the Jews, once and forever, the tragedy of assuming, of presuming, of taking it for granted that all is well with us when all is not well. That is the great lesson of the Jewish nation, particularly clearly shown in this chapter. Of course, our Lord deals with the same thing. That's the point of the great parable of the Pharisee and the publican who went up into the temple together to pray at the beginning of Luke 18. It's exactly the same point. I thank thee, says this poor Pharisee. I thank thee, O God, that I'm not as other men are. Perfectly happy. And yet all wrong. That's the great lesson of the Jewish nation. Let us examine ourselves. Let us prove our own selves, as the apostle says to the Corinthians. Let's make certain that we are in the faith. Let's make our calling and election sure. The New Testament is full of these warnings. But here, as I say in this tremendous picture, in the case of the Jewish nation, we are driven to see the importance of constant self-examination. And the last uh, personal lesson that I would draw would be this one. And it's here on the very surface. The danger of reading the scriptures with a prejudiced mind. Now, here, you see, is again something that's so obvious in the case of the Jews. There's where the scriptures. The apostle has reminded us that, of that away back at chapter 3. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. The scriptures. They said those other people, those Gentiles are dogs. They've got no revelation. They've got no scriptures. God hasn't spoken to them. They never had any prophets. They never had any patriarchs. We've got the scriptures. And they delighted in them. You remember our Lord putting it, search the scriptures, or you search the scriptures, because you think that in them you have eternal life. All right, that was their proud burst, and they were reading their scriptures. They were experts in the scriptures. And yet they're lost, they're outside the kingdom. They're reprobate. Why? Well, as we've seen so clearly as the apostle quotes from the scriptures, they were blinded by prejudice. This is the most alarming thing that one can ever realize about himself. Every one of us is subject to prejudice. There's not one of us that's free from prejudice. The devil sees to that. And the prejudices are almost endless in number. So that when you come to the scriptures, you come with a prejudiced eye. And you see what you want to see. 
That's what all the heretics have always done, isn't it? They've always quoted scripture. Some of these modern heretics, they quote a little scripture, not much, but they do, even they try to quote a little. And you see, if you take the scriptures with this prejudiced mind and understanding, you can make them prove almost anything you like. And the Jews were perfectly happy about themselves because it seemed to them that the scriptures everywhere were saying that they alone were saved and that everybody else was lost. The truth being that they were lost and others were saved. We must always beware of prejudice. We must never read the scriptures without praying. We should never approach them without asking the Holy Spirit to lead us and to guide us and to direct us. We should deliberately humble ourselves. We should talk to ourselves and say, now why am I going to the scriptures? Am I only going there to find arguments to support my case? Or am I going there to be instructed, to be enlightened, to have my eyes open to the truth of God? We should always try to come as little children and be ready to find that you're wrong. There's no disgrace in changing your mind or in saying I was wrong. Why, it's the most wonderful thing to say. There is a kind of consistency that is most reprehensible. It's small-minded. We should be big enough to confess that we were wrong. We shouldn't come merely to substantiate what we've always said and thought. There's nothing more wonderful than for a man to say, whereas I was once blind, now I see. I do trust that some of us have passed through that experience as we've been working through the ninth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. If you take up the position of saying, I'll never believe that, well then I doubt whether you're a Christian at all. You must never say that with respect to the truth of God. We must never say that with regard to any aspect of it. We must be ready to listen, ready to examine, have an open mind, a mind that is ready for the illumination of the Spirit. Here, you see, are these people. They're a perpetual warning to us. With the scriptures open before them, their delight in it, they're all wrong. Why? Prejudice. What a terrible thing it is. God deliver us from it all. Very well, there are some of what I've called these personal lessons. But now I want to go a step further to a third group of lessons with a wider scope. There are certain general lessons here, it seems to me, from the standpoint of the church as a whole, and especially for the Christian church, as she is at this very moment in her present position. Now, I'm most concerned about this because this is a very great chapter that we've been looking at for such a long time. And there are certain general points here which I think you'll see are very relevant to the whole situation in which we are placed at this present moment. Now take for instance, here's one lesson. This chapter is a perpetual warning to us against regarding all people who are members of the Christian church in a visible sense as being Christians. Now let me put that again. The essential error of, the Roman, of, of these Jews was that they thought that the mere fact that they were Jews meant that of necessity they were God's children and that they were right with God. Their argument was, we've been born Jews, we belong to the Jewish nation, therefore, of necessity, we are the people of God and we are the heirs of the promises. The whole point of the chapter is to say that that is not so. It's stated explicitly in verse 6. They are not all Israel, which are of Israel. You can belong to the visible Israel, but you're not really a member of the true Israel. Now you remember that point, don't you? Well, now I say there is one of those points that is so true today. It seems to me that the main argument for the so-called ecumenical movement is just this that all people who call themselves Christians and who are members of the Christian church are therefore Christians and that we must regard them all as Christians. That's the main argument which seems to me to be contravening the main argument of the ninth chapter of the epistle to the Romans. Alas, 
It is possible to belong to the Christian church and still not to be a Christian. You can have your name on a church roll, you can be regarded as a Christian and yet not be a Christian. It's the whole argument of the entire chapter. As it was possible for Israel to make that mistake, it's possible for us to make that mistake. What corresponds to the visible Israel is the visible church. And what the apostle is saying is, all who belong to the visible Israel are not of Israel. So all who belong to the visible church are not of the true church. They thought that they belonged to the true Israel because they'd been circumcised. How many, I wonder, think today that they're Christians because they've been baptized? And at the moment, it doesn't matter how you've been baptized. There are many who think they're Christians because they were baptized when they were children. There are others who think that they are Christians because they were baptized when they were adult. Baptism never makes anybody a Christian, whether an infant or an adult. It isn't the baptism that does it. These people thought circumcision did it. Many think that baptism does it. It doesn't. Both are wrong. You can have passed through the rite, or the rite can have been performed upon you, but it doesn't change your condition of necessity. Very well, then there is one lesson you see immediately. So we must be wary about this argument that says, look here, why don't you join? You're criticizing your fellow Christians. But you say, are you sure they are Christians? Now there you are, they say, you think that you alone are a Christian. Surely they're Christians, they're members of the Christian church. They must be Christians. That's a denial of the argument of the apostle in Romans 9. But let's go on to a second. A second lesson I find here is the difference between true and false continuity. True and false continuity. What do I mean? Well, I mean something like this. The error of the Jews was really based on this point, that they had come down in a lineal descent from Abraham. Their great argument always was, Abraham's our father. They brought it against our Lord, you remember? When our Lord said to them on that occasion, If ye continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed, and ye shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. They turned to him and they said, We be Abraham's seed, and were never in bondage to any men. How sayest thou, ye shall be made free? Lineal descent. Physical continuity. They thought that that was the thing that guaranteed their salvation and proved that they and they alone were the children of God. Now, that is what I call false continuity. That is the continuity of Ishmael, Esau and company. There is a continuity there, of course there is. There is a direct continuity from Abraham, Ishmael, Esau and so on, right away through. It is a continuity. But according to this argument, it is a false continuity. He says that isn't the real continuity. The real continuity is Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and so on, David, etc. Now, you see, there are two continuities. But the whole argument of the chapter is that one of them is true and one of them is false. How, what has that got to do with us, says somebody? Well, I can tell you what it has to do with us. There is in the Christian church, likewise, a false and a true continuity. And it is because people don't realize this that they go astray in their doctrine. Now there are people who take up the position of saying that nothing matters and that this is the final question of authority, apostolic succession. Great argument of the Roman church. Great argument of the Anglo-Catholics. Apostolic succession. They say, you nonconformist, you haven't a ministry at all. You haven't been ordained by a bishop who comes down in direct lineal descent from the apostle Peter, the first. But we do. Here is a direct line. Here is the continuity. Well, now, you see, that's dealt with in Romans 9, and you realize that. That's why I'm holding you here and not rushing on to chapter 10. This is most germane to the present position. To start with, we question and query the continuity. But I needn't waste your time with that. Even if we were to grant them the apostolic succession and continuity, we don't do it for a moment, but even if we did, it would prove nothing at all. Because the argument of Romans 9 is that that may very well be the false continuity. The true continuity is the thing that matters. 
The true apostolic succession is not that you come down with a mechanical laying of hands from one to the next, even as Ishmael and Esau come from Isaac in that false way. No, no, the real continuity is the spiritual continuity. The man who's in the direct line from the apostles is the man who preaches the doctrine of the apostles. The man who has the spirit of the apostles in him. Not a man who has derived something mechanically from the laying on of physical hands. Now you notice that this is an argument that is used so often in the New Testament. Take what, how Paul puts it in Ephesians 2. Where he tells us about the attitude of the Jews towards the Gentiles. Listen to this. Wherefore remember he says in Ephesians 2.11 that ye being in time past Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by that which is called the circumcision in the flesh made by hands. That's it. See, that's the false continuity. The circumcision made by hands. That's the false, the external. The true is the circumcision of the heart. Indeed, it's already here at the end of Romans 2 where he puts it like this. He is a Jew which is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, and not in the letter, whose praise is not of men, but of God. Very well. We apply all that to the present position by putting it like this. What matters in the realm of the church is not the visible. It is the invisible. You see, Paul has argued here, they are not all Israel which are of Israel, neither because they are of the seed of Abraham are they all children, but in Isaac shall thy seed be called, that is, they which are the children of the flesh, these are not the children of God, but the children of the promise accounted for the seed. You see the distinction? The false, the true, the visible, the invisible, the true continuity in the church is the invisible. There is only one really continuous church, that is, this invisible spiritual continuity of those who are born again, of those who are led of the Spirit. Nothing else is of any value. I know that the other is a kind of continuity. You can start back with the apostles and you can come down through your church history and you see a continuation in an institution. But it, it's of no value. It may be of the very devil. It may be the continuity that damned the nation of Israel and blinded them to the spiritual truth as it is blinding Roman Catholicism even tonight. Nothing matters here but the spiritual, the true seed, the real continuity is not a mechanical, external, physical one of laying on of hands or of anything else. It is the continuity of the work of the Spirit. Very well. Let's go on to a third uh, lesson which we draw in this way. We must never be surprised if the church is to be found in a state of apostasy. I find this most comforting. That's why I find this whole chapter a most comforting chapter. If the nation of Israel could be apostate, well then it's possible for anybody to be apostate. The fact that the church is the church does not prove that she is always right. The church can be apostate. The visible people of God can go all wrong. It's happened many times. I believe it's happening today. Very well then. We must not assume that because people say we belong to the church that they're all right. The church mustn't assume that because she is the church that she is all right. The church must always put herself under the judgment of the word of God. You see, the nation of Israel was the church under the old dispensation. The nation and the church were one. So what you have in the old, in the nation, is true of the church in the new. The nation became apostate. The church can become apostate. I believe that happened before the Reformation. I fear it is happening again, even in the Reformed church. But we mustn't be surprised at that. Here is teaching that prepares us for that. So far from saying the church can never go wrong as a whole, we must be ready to believe that she can go wrong as a whole. Very well, let me hurry on to my next, which is number four. And here is real comfort and consolation. If this chapter hasn't taught us anything else, it should have taught us this, that we need never have any fear about the future of the Christian church. We need never be alarmed about the future of the people of God. Why not? Well, here's the answer. 
Isaiah also crieth concerning Israel, though the number of the children of Israel be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved, only a remnant. He repeats it, as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabaoth had left us a seed, we had been a Sodomer, we had been made like unto Gomorrah. It looked as if the whole nation had gone, Sodom and Gomorrah, the end, final destruction. No, God preserved a seed. So I say that we need never have any fear about the future of the Christian church. Let the enemy do anything he likes. Talk as much as you like about your communism and all your other enemies of the Christian faith. Don't be frightened. Don't be worried about the future of the church. This kind of thing has happened so often before. It's God who preserves and he will preserve a seed always. We need have no fear. And his purpose will certainly and surely be brought to pass. There have been so many times when the end seemed to have come. Sodom and Gomorrah. No, no. God kept it going. He will keep it going until his purpose is finally complete. Next deduction, five. The significance of numbers in connection with the church and her function. And the answer is that numbers don't matter at all. God preserves a remnant. God preserves a seed. Only a handful, perhaps. Doesn't matter. We needn't be concerned about that. What matters in the church is not the number, but the purity. And you and I mustn't be ashamed of being a remnant, weak and small. We mustn't apologize for being but a handful of people. No, no, it doesn't matter. This is God's way. In a sense, it can even become a privilege. We must cease to think in terms of numbers. We must think in terms of the purpose of God and the purity of the witness and the testimony. God will preserve this seed. He'll take it on in spite of everything. Thank God if we belong to the faithful remnant. The next lesson which I draw, lesson number six, is this one. We must always be aware of the danger of becoming a closed corporation. Israel had become a closed corporation. She had no interest in the Gentiles. She was concerned about herself, proud of her own position, always looking at herself, turning in upon herself, taking pride in herself. No interest in those who were outside. They were dogs, barbarians, not worthy of consideration. Many a time has the church fallen into that particular error. And I detect signs of that in certain friends at the present time. You are to be concerned about the purity of the church, but that doesn't mean that you erect barriers and shut out the outsider and almost make him feel that he hasn't got a right to come inside. That's the very negation of a Christian church. Israel had turned in upon herself, had become self-centered, proud and prejudiced. God save us from such a terrible fate. A church which is not actively propagating the truth, witnessing to it, concerned about the lost, is unworthy of the name of the church of Jesus Christ. All that comes before us here. But then let me come to lesson number seven. And oh, what comfort there is here again. Indeed, there's not only comfort here, there is something to me very glorious in this next point. It's this. If we've learned the lesson of Romans 9, we must have learned to expect revival to come in the most unexpected places and from the most unexpected persons. Listen. What shall we say then? That the Gentiles which followed not after righteousness have attained to righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, hath not attained unto the law of righteousness. That's the biggest surprise of the ages. But it is so characteristic of the sovereignty of God. Oh, you must never be surprised at anything that happens in this realm. God constantly springs surprises upon us. I don't think there's ever been a revival in the history of the church, but that God has more or less repeated this very thing. Where do revivals generally start? Well, they generally start in some unknown little village or hamlet that you've never heard of. 
Who does God use? Not some men that was prominent or regarded great by the church. Somebody quite unknown and unexpected. A young man like George Whitfield brought up in the Bell Tavern in Gloucester. Who would ever have thought of it? And so true in all ages and in all generations. This is how God does his work. Always full of surprises and astonishment and amazement. Who would have thought it, people say? Well, let us be ready for this. And so I come to my very last point, which is this. And it's a very solemn one. You and I, my friends, would not be attending this meeting regularly unless we held to the true faith, unless we were orthodox, unless we were concerned about doctrine and about true doctrine. That is as it should be. That is right. That is excellent but on one condition that we don't presume upon it. The moment we do, the moment we begin to feel self-satisfied, the moment the spirit of the Pharisee begins to come in and we say, we are the people, thank God we are not like those others. We are putting ourselves into this terribly dangerous position that when God comes to revive his work, he may well bypass us and use one of these despised people that neither we nor anybody else ever thought of as being in the center of God's will and purpose. Here's the terrifying lesson. It is the Gentiles who are in, in the center of the church and through whom God is spreading the good news. And the Jews are outside, bypassed. God forbid that any of this spirit of prejudice that was in the Jew should ever possess us and lead us to this pathetic position where we see God again having to take hold of the things that are not to bring to naught the things that are, that no man should glory in his presence. We must be orthodox, but don't be proud of it. Don't rely upon it, even that. Let us realize this great lesson of the sovereignty of God. His great and glorious purpose. That it is he who calls. He calls whom he wills. He raises, he puts down. The only conclusion, therefore, to draw as the result of all this is that we should walk with reverence and with godly fear, that we should walk humbly with our God. His purposes are sure. And our longing and our heart's desire, all of us should be, that we be such people that God can use us that he'll never in any shape or form have to lay us aside, as it were, or bypass us in order to do what he wants to do. God forbid that we, in our desire to safeguard against certain errors and excesses, should become guilty of quenching the Spirit. We can be so sure of ourselves and so much in control of the position that we are not giving the Spirit of God an opportunity. Let us learn these great lessons, my dear friends, from the ninth chapter of Paul's epistle to the Romans. They are there shouting at us on the very surface. Up to date, you see, with regard to the church in general, our particular position, and the whole of our life and of our conduct. But above all, I say, let us humble ourselves under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt us. Who exalteth himself, the Lord abases, but who abases himself shall be exalted. Let us ascribe, therefore, 
And to God always all the praise and all the honor and all the glory. And let us rejoice in this one thing, the purpose of God according to election and its ultimate absolute certainty. Amen. O Lord our God, we do indeed come before thee and we humble ourselves in thy most holy presence. We see our nothingness, O Lord. We see that all our righteousness is but as filthy rags, but as dung and loss. Oh, we bless thee for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, open our eyes to it, we pray thee, more and more. And let it be our one burning desire to know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death, if by any means we might attain unto the resurrection from amongst the dead. O Lord, keep us in that place of humility. Keep us, O God, in that place of expectancy. Keep us in that place of marvel and of wonder, love, and of prayers. And now, may the grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and the love of God, and the fellowship and the communion of the Holy Spirit, abide and continue with us now this night, throughout the remainder of this hour, short, uncertain, earthly life and pilgrimage. And until... The purpose of God in us is complete and we shall find ourselves in the glory everlasting. Amen. We do hope that you've been helped by the preaching of Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones. The MLJ Trust retains exclusive copyright ownership to all audio files of Dr. Lloyd-Jones' sermons, including all derivatives such as translations, modifications, or edited versions of the files. You must gain written permission to license, distribute, or broadcast the audio files, and under no circumstance may the files be offered for sale to or by a third party. You can find our contact information on our website at mljtrust.org. Thank you.